Romans 8 and verse 21. Twenty-one through twenty-three. It says that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now just to ask that your word go forth, Lord, that, uh, that your word is clearly taught to your people, that your people are edified by your word, that your name is glorified, Lord, and that the preacher is out of the way, invisible, that, it, that what we see now is your glory. That's what we're here for, Lord. And we, that's what we desire from, from the preaching and expounding of your text. In the name of Christ, amen. <clears throat> so just real quick in way of review. Uh, obviously, Romans chapter 8 is dealing with the Spirit. Over and over again, it's talking about the Spirit. Um, and it comes directly after Paul's dealing with the law and showing you, you, you're not sanctified by the law. That by the, You see in the law... The things that you're not doing that you want to be doing. You see the things that you're, you are doing that you shouldn't be doing. Um, but then he tells us, you know, there's no condemnation for us. In Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation, not even one condemnation. And then he goes through and deals with the, with the Spirit and Him making us alive. And, it's, and it, remember, it talks about us walking in the Spirit, those who walk in the Spirit. We don't walk in the flesh. Our way of life is in the Spirit. We see the fruit of the Spirit. We saw that, those texts over and over again for about two or three weeks. The fruit of the Spirit and the, and the works of the flesh. And as Christians, our lives are not defined by the works of the flesh, but by the fruit of the Spirit. Um, we'll, we'll, we won't be looking at that, but I will be mentioning that again today. We saw our adoption as sons, as children of God, that we've been adopted into the family of God, that we are made joint heirs with Christ and heirs of God. And that we saw what that meant was, you know, we have an inheritance in Christ. And then now, the last two weeks, we saw that creation itself is eagerly Awaiting the redemption, the revealing of the sons of God. And then we're going to dive into these texts this week. Uh, I have three points here. Uh, they're pretty easy to remember. We have the fallen world. We have the pregnant world. And we have the redeemed world. Yes. <laughs> it's in our text though, I promise. So let's start out with the first one, the fallen world. Let me start out by reminding you of something I said last week. If you remember last week, the last words in verse uh, 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Remember uh, last week, I said I thought in hope. That was in verse 20, should actually be in verse 21. But I did not see any commentators say that, so it was hard for me to make that, make that stance, even though that's what it looks like to me. 
Well, then this week uh, I'm going into it and I, I'm reading John Gill. And listen to what John Gill says right here. The phrase in hope, which stands in our version at the, begin, at the end of the preceding verse, should be placed in the beginning of this one. So I'm much smarter than I thought it was. That's good. But, so in hope is part of this, is it, in hope that we see that the creation itself. But with that, I might be preaching almost the same message. Uh, Mike said something yesterday about preaching today, and I said, well, it would be about the same message as last week. Because it's dealing with the same thing. Um, and I'm sure I'm going to bring out some of the same thoughts, and I might say the exact same words and same sentences, but that's because the text brings them out. And sometimes as a preacher, going verse by verse, the hardest thing to do is to know where to stop. Which verses do I cut off to save till next week? Should I stick with those two verses, or should I pick up the next two as well? And then sometimes if I pick up the next two, that means it's another hour of preaching. And I know y'all don't want to sit here for two and a half, three hours. So sometimes you got to break it up, and you might preach almost the same message twice. But we'll be looking at some of the same truths, but let's rest assured that God has a reason for this. He has a reason for us looking at some of the same truths. And that reason isn't for us to criticize the preacher. But to learn from his word. God tells us the same truths over and over and over and over. I don't know about you, but when I came to the doctrines of grace, I could not turn from one page in a Bible and it not be right there in my face. Over and over and over. And it was God beating that truth into me. To the point that I got to, and I said to my preacher, pastor at the time I said I'm at the point now I haven't slept for like two days I haven't eaten and I'm either going to throw my Bible away and get forget Christianity or I'm just going to bow and worship obviously 18 years later I'm still here preaching those truths but sometimes God uses the same truth over and over again to teach us it's so we learn so let's dig in it says in hope and I'll be connecting that to this verse. Let, let me bring out something out of the text so that, I, that I don't want us to miss. If you read verses 19 and verse 20 acts as a parenthesis, apart from in hope, it shows us what Paul is saying. Look at verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. And I, I said if you act as 20 as a parenthesis there, apart from in hope, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption. So the creation waits eagerly in hope that it will be set free from the slavery of corruption. Now we dealt with this last time what the creation is, right? Uh, if y'all remember, either the creation is as we think of creation, obviously, like the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees. Or it's the Gentile world. Remember, that's what we saw last week. I have no t problem with either of these views. But if you remember, I argued that I think it's both. I think it's the creation, and I think it's the Gentile world. Which are creation. Remember, I showed you last week Gil's argument for the Gentiles, and I think it was a strong argument. And I showed you the quote from Calvin on the creation. 
And I love the quote. I think we should say that the creation, the creation that is hoping for and waiting eagerly and groaning is far as the curse is found. Remember I said I don't believe that it could be talking about angels. Why? Because the angels weren't part of the curse, right? The angels, there are some fallen angels, but that's, they fell not because of the sin of man, they fell because of their own sin. That's what Paul is speaking about. Because that's what was subjected to futility. Far as the curse is found, it is in slavery to corruption and groans because of sin and death. The whole of creation is in hope, ready to be set free from slavery. Not just men, but everything that was cursed. I quoted it, I put it up on Facebook, you know, it says, God, God didn't say I'm making some things new. He said, I'm making all things new. Not just a small percentage of man that's on earth, but I, he says, I'm making all things new. And we can see that in his creation, too. They are eagerly waiting for that. You know, the, 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 uh, the Christmas hymn by Isaac Watts, who's postman, by the way. But I just quoted it. It says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. That's what we're seeing right here. This is talking about far as the curse is found is groaning and eagerly awaiting for the revealing of the sons of God. So we have Christmas here in July, right? But it's true. All that was cursed will be redeemed. Not just men, but also the creation. And we all eagerly wait in hope of this day. This day what we call the consummation. The end of the world as we know it. We all wait for this day, do we not? It's coming, brethren. It may be thousands of years from now, but it's still coming. And believe me, you'll be one or two places up until it comes too, right? And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what's a thousand years? What's a thousand years for all of eternity? However, right now, we live in a fallen world. That's the point. That's the, my point here. The fallen world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where sin is a reality every day. We live in a world where you can't look at the news without seeing sin. We live in a world that death is around every corner as well. We all, I, everybody in here probably knows somebody that's died. Somebody that's close to them. One of their family members. One of their friends. One of their co-workers. We all know it. It's everywhere. This is the fallen world we live in. And this is the reality that we all have to deal with it. None of us escape this. None of us escape this. And I know there's some that act like they're above it. You know the books that come out like every day is Friday. Or the preaching by our modern day motivational speakers or prosperity preachers. As though everything's supposed to be all hunky-dory in your life. Everything's supposed to be going well. You're supposed to have this fake smile on all the time. Well, pastor, how can I have a fake smile on when my wife just died? When my child just died? And you expect me to be smiling? That's not the world we live in. Now, yes, we should be joyous, right? But that's not the world. We live in a sinful world. 
And if, you know, those preachers also say, if everything's not going your way, it's because of something you did. You must have sinned. You must have did this or you're not doing that. Those that teach that are teaching contrary to scripture though. Jesus actually said the opposite of that. Turn, look at Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, 1. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. We go. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, their sin was not greater, but we live in a fallen world, right? That's what they teach. We live in a fallen world. We all have sin, and your sin is not greater than my sin, and my sin is not greater than your sin. And he says, unless you repent, you will also perish. You who are coming to me saying, what about these people? Unless you repent, you also perish. Isn't that nice how Jesus brought it back to them? You're coming at me talking about these worse sinners than you, and I bring it right back to you and say, unless you repent, you will also perish. Remember John and, or, uh, uh, Jesus in John chapter 9, it says, And as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither this man that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was that in order the works of God might be displayed in him. Yet, there's those that come around and say, if everything's not going good in your life, it must be because of sin. It must be because you're doing something or you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Maybe stuff's not going right in your life because we live in a fallen world. Maybe it is sin. But maybe... We live in a fallen world and stuff goes wrong in all of our lives. This is why I say with the men's thing, we are to come together and help one another. Because, you know, men, we got to, I don't need help, right? I got it all nailed down. I don't need anybody else. I don't need to listen to you. Yeah, right. That's why the church exists. We live in a fallen world. We need each other. People are born, listen, people are born blind. Deaf, mute, with all kinds of disabilities, right? People are born that way. This guy was born blind. This is one of the best narratives, I think, because then the Jews come along and, and he kind of just makes fun of the Jews, I think. The, the blind man and his parents. He's like, he's of age, go ask him. Why would you ask us? But anyway, so he was born blind. And we ought to be, be, be very careful saying it's because of their sin. Oh, the parents sinned, therefore their child was born this way. I ought to be careful saying that stuff. It stems from Adam's sin. I actually just heard a preacher, famous preacher, say kids that have autism are demon-possessed. 
How about they have autism because we live in a fallen world? And in this earth, people are born with defects, right? To say something that's stupid should demand that he step out of the pulpit. And I'd ask the same if I ever said something that's stupid. Now, could some stuff be demon possession? Yeah. But I'm not going to be the one to say it. Like, every single, every single one of these is demon possession? You don't have the right to say that. None of us do. We live in a sin-cursed earth, a fallen world. That's where we live. Especially when Jesus says just the opposite, right? This man was born blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said neither of them. He didn't mean neither of them ever sinned. He said the sin, he meant the sin didn't cause the blindness. What about Job's friends? Who accused Job? Because he lost everything, right? He lost everything. Job, you must have sinned. But what did God say about Job? You're a perfect and upright man. Job is a perfect and upright man. That, that did not mean he was sinless. That meant he served the Lord. He was righteous through the righteousness of Christ. He was he a was mature man of faith. And lost everything. Lost his whole family. And all his livestock. And his barn. And they say, it must be because you sinned. And brethren, we deal with sickness and disease because of the curse. We deal with death because of the curse. Because of original sin. Not necessarily because of your sin that you committed. Even though, yes, your sins do sometimes end up in that kind of stuff. Sin, death, disease, suffering come from the original sin of Adam. Let me branch this out a little bit too. This isn't just for humans. This is not just for humans. We, when we look out into the animal kingdom, we see their offspring born with defects too, right? We see sickness and disease in the animal kingdom. Why? Because the lion sinned? Or the elephant sinned? Absolutely not. It's because Adam sinned. Adam sinned, and now a lion is born with three legs. It had nothing to do with the lion. We as humans aren't living under the curse while everything else around us isn't. We must recognize that. It's not like everything else, God said everything is good, and when man sinned, the only thing that fell was man. But everything else fell with it. We're all together. We're all fallen. Yet the earth didn't sin against God. When God set the earth in space, He set it and said, right here. And it's been there ever since. Exactly where He told it to be, it's been there ever since. When He told the earth to spin at however many miles per hour it spins around, it has spun exactly that amount of time since He said it. When he told the mountains to go so high, what did they do? They went to where he told them. He told the valleys to go so low, they went where he told them. When he formed the ocean, he said, you can come this far and you will not go any farther. And what did the ocean do? It went right to where God told it to go. 
And he told man, don't eat of one tree. And he did it. All of creation obeys God. God tells man, you can do whatever you Don't eat of this one tree. Just one tree that's in the midst of the garden. Don't eat of that tree. And he ate. And he disobeyed. And now the whole realm is cursed. And suffers sickness, death, and destruction. Not because of their sin, but because of Adam's as our federal head. We know this idea of suffering and destruction and death all too well, don't we? It's the world we live in. Especially as Christians, we know this. We have the answer, though. We have the answer. The atheist worldview doesn't have the answer. They don't have the answer for death and suffering and destruction. They can't answer it. According to their worldview, why do, why do things die according to the atheistic worldview? They just do. That's not an answer. The second law of thermodynamics, which says everything tends towards chaos or destruction or death. Sorry, atheists, you can't have that. A law comes from a lawgiver, and you have no lawgiver. So you can't answer that. They have no answer for it. They must borrow from our worldview to have any kind of coherent argument against our worldview. They use our worldview to argue against our worldview. However, as Christians, we have the answer. Things die because of sin. They, the atheists can't say that. We know things die because of sin. Because Adam sinned, therefore things die. Things are cursed. And it wasn't always this way, and it won't always be this way. Praise God. God created a good world, and because of sin, things die and suffer. I must move on, but let, let me, let's remember this. The context of this, though. The context of who Paul, Paul is writing to people who were suffering and dying and being murdered. Paul himself was suffering. And this is who he's writing to. And where does he take their minds? He's writing to people that are suffering and being murdered for their faith. And where does he take their minds? Does he say, well, Romans, you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done that. Where does he take them? He takes their minds back to creation. This stuff is happening. You're suffering. Your martyrdom is because of sin. Because of original sin. Because of the curse. Martyrdom happens because of the fall in the garden. If Adam didn't sin, Cain wouldn't have killed Abel. So that's our context. And we must remember that when we're going, going through text. Not just to pull it out and make it say whatever we wanted to make it say, but keep it in its context. So it's pretty much him telling the Roman Christians, yes, we live in a fallen world where sin happens, but be of good cheer. This is not the end. And creation itself groans about it too. <coughs> but notice moving on in our text. Let's go back here to Romans 8. I'm going to read them again. Uh, starting with in hope in verse 20. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption unto the, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together even until now. And not only this, but we, but ourselves weep 
but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption to sons, the redemption of our body. Notice in these verses, man, they got in hope, groaning, eagerly waiting. These are all about the same idea. Though the world has fallen, it is pregnant with expectation. That's the second point. The pregnant world. <laughs> the fallen world, and now we got the pregnant world. They're pregnant with expectation. That's what it says. It is filled with hope and expectation. It is eager for the revealing. It's actually interesting to me the language and words Paul uses here in our context to teach us this. He's trying to drive home a point. He says it over and over again. Eagerly awaiting, expecting, in hope. Over and over again. He's trying to drive home a point to the Romans and by extension to us. The point that though we are in a fallen world, the whole world is expectant like a pregnant woman of the revealing of the sons of God. In their redemption from the curse as well. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffer the pains of childbirth even until now. Groans together and suffers the pains of childbirth together. You know, literally in the Greek, this is only three words. And one of the words is and. So it's literally two words. Sustanazo, which means to groan or lament together. Experience a common calamity together. And then the, the next word is sunodino, which means to travail in pain together. To suffer together. You, you see the, you see the con, what, what he's teaching us there? It's to groan together and to suffer pain together. And it, that's two words, and the word in the middle is just and. So you, you groan together and you suffer pain together. With the creation. And we lament together. We experience this together. It's all of creation. It's not, not just mankind that experiences the effects of the fall, but all of creation even though it's not their fault. But the idea here is that this suffering will not continue forever. That's what, that's what he's teaching. It's not just to teach us that suffering, like, yay, we're in suffering. It's to teach us this, what's past the suffering. That we do suffer together now. We are in pain together now. We travail together now. But what's coming is redemption. And we won't suffer forever. We are in travail together as a pregnant woman who is about to give birth. That's what the text is teaching us. What's one thing we know about a woman that's pregnant? That a child is going to come forth, right? We know this. If, if you're pregnant, you're on, you, you, we could even say, in hope this child will come forth. We know there's an end date. There's a delivery date. There's a due date. It's going to come to an end. She won't stay pregnant forever. Amen, ladies? <laughs> and not just that, but what is a pregnant woman like with a child in her womb? They aren't just happy, he said, mean. They aren't just happy with being pregnant. It's not like, oh, joy, I'm pregnant. 
It's of having the hope of the coming child. And they want that child in their arms. They don't want to walk around forever with a child just in their womb. That doesn't bring them hope. That doesn't, that's not what they're expecting. They're expecting when the child is born to hold that child. That's what makes them happy about being pregnant. And that's what's said of the whole creation. That's what it said right here. Creation isn't just content with the way it is now. Creation is pregnant with joy and expectation of the revealing of the sons of God and the redemption of this world. Notice the language in verse 23, though. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. So it's not just the creation out there that's groaning. But we ourselves groan as well. Now this word for groan here is actually the, similar to this word sustenazo that's in the, in the previous verse. It's just stenazo. Sustenazo means to groan together. Stenazo means just to groan by yourself. So we're, we're groaning together. All creation's groaning together. But you, Christian, you elect one sitting here today, you also groan within yourself. All creation groans together, but we also groan ourselves. And it's, you know what's interesting about this? These words here that Paul only uses them in one other, uh, one other place. So let's turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 1. says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about this tent of our flesh. That it will be torn down, but we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house, the one that you're in right now, the tent that you're in right now, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put, on, put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Does that not sound exactly like what Paul is teaching us in Romans chapter 8? It's the same, same truth. This is what he's teaching us. We groan. We groan. Listen, this is important. We groan does not mean to complain. It means to sigh inwardly. It's not, oh, going out complaining all the time that the world's falling. It's a sigh, an inward sigh. Waiting for this mortal body to be swallowed up and taken on immortality. We read the news and see the death and suffering that's happening and we sigh inwardly and expect that which is to come in the eternal state. 
Do you feel this, brother? Do you feel that inward sigh when you're watching the news and you see all the death and destruction and sin? This inward sigh of, I can't wait for the eternal state. I can't wait for the consummation. Not only that, do you look within and see the sin in yourself that our Savior died for and sigh within yourself because you keep doing it? That's where it's going to start, right? It's not turning, turning on the news. It's not walking around here and seeing all the sin outside of here. When we go to preach out here, it's easy to stand there and preach to people that are walking by as though sin only exists on those people. But the, what we need to do first is look in the mirror before we go down there to preach. And, and condemn our own sin. Do, are we doing that? Does that make us sigh within ourselves? Ah, I can't wait to get out of this because I keep doing this same stupid thing over and over again. Are you longing for that day that there isn't just sin without, but where there is no sin within? That's what creation is pregnant with. When it speaks about the creation groaning, being pregnant, it's pregnant with anticipation, with expectation and hope for that day to come. And not only creation, but those who have been bought with the blood of Christ. We hope for this. We expect this. We are pregnant with this expectation. It should be there. It should be always ready. And you notice, I didn't have this in my text, but you notice one thing too. Now you got to be careful with this, but one of the things you can know about a pregnant woman as well is she typically looks pregnant. Now don't go around asking women if they're pregnant. But you can see it. Right? Can you see that in you, Christian? That you're pregnant with the hope that what is coming. Or does, do people not know about you? All I ever see them doing is groaning and complaining. Mumbling and complaining. Or is it, I know something's better coming. I can suffer through this 70, 80 years that God gave me. And let's move on. I'm back in Romans 8. Last point. The second point was pregnant world. The first point, fallen world. The third point, redeemed world. Read verse 23 again. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What are we waiting for? When our redemption is complete. When our adoption is complete, our bodies are redeemed. This is what we're longing for. Not simply because we're getting old and it's harder to get out of bed in the morning. But it's because of sin. It's not just, oh, my joints ache, therefore I want what's coming. No, it's because of sin that we groan for, that we sigh inwardly for the release from. When this corruption puts on incorruption and sin is gone, there will be no more death, no more suffering. The sons of God will be revealed and this world is redeemed. I can't think of a better text to go to to see this than 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 35. 
1 Corinthians 15, 35. The hardest thing about 1 Corinthians 15 is not reading the whole chapter. We're going to read half the chapter. <laughs> Verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Paul really nicely says here, you fool. That which you sow does not come up, come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. I think I mentioned this last time, but y'all get the picture right here, right? When, when we plant, say you want um, lettuce, you don't plant lettuce in the ground. You don't go buy a head of lettuce from the store and dig a hole and put the head of lettuce in. You plant a seed, a little seed, and that what that seed does is it dies, it decays, and when it breaks open and bursts forth, it's much more glorious than a seed, right? You plant this little tiny seed and it comes out a head of lettuce. That's the picture. That's the picture of our bodies. But look, verse 38, but God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star, star differs from star in glory. So also is the redemption of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, the same picture, sown a perishable body, that seed, that what do we do with our bodies when we die? They get planted into the ground, right? Just like a seed, it gets planted into the ground. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable seed, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's a lot to read, right? That's a lot to take in. And it would be a lot. That would be a year of preaching. 
if we were to go to that chapter. But you see it though, brethren. Adam came first. The earthly. The natural. Then the second Adam. The heavenly. The spiritual. So you, who have been born again, though you were born naturally in this world, have been raised together with Christ, and there is coming a day when you will put on immortality. You have mortality through Adam. You have immortality through Christ, the second Adam. Death is now a thing, but there will be a day where death is no longer. When is that? Well, it's when all Christ's enemies are his footstool. Look at verse 26 of the same chapter in 1 Corinthians. Or, yeah, verse 22, I'm sorry. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to God and to the God and Father, when he had abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So when's death going to be gone? When all his enemies are his footstool. Brethren, that's what we're waiting for. When I say we're waiting, I don't mean we're waiting like we're waiting in a, um, a lazy boy. Like we're just sitting there waiting. But we're busy while we're waiting, right? We're busy about making it happen too, right? This is what we go preach for. I sure hope so. I hope we're preaching to, to, to see God save His elect. And see His name glorified. And see His name praised. We want others here singing songs with us on Sunday. And, and digging into His Word. And holding one another accountable. That's what we're out there for. It's not for me. Believe me, it's not for me. Because I wouldn't go out there if it was for me. I wouldn't be up here if it was for me. I don't like speaking in front of people. But we need to be busy about this. By the gospel. Through the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel. By us taking forth the gospel, Christ is redeeming the world. He's saving souls, and those souls are working for His glory. This is a cycle that we are part of, and that will continue until He comes back at the end. Isn't that awesome? You see these cycles? I actually have one that Actually, Jason was kind of part of it. The Lord had me disciple a gentleman who then discipled Jason. And I didn't know it until me and Jason got back together. But I didn't know that... I, I did, I, when I discipled him, I didn't know that he even knew Jason at the time. But that's how it works. That's how God does this thing. It's a cycle. You're out there. You're preaching Christ. God saves that person. You disciple that person. They go out. They preach Christ. God saves that person, they disciple that person. And it keeps going and going and going. And it will keep going and going and going and going until the end. When all his enemies are his footstool. And then death will be abolished. But in the meantime, we groan within ourselves. And we go forth with the life-giving message. Knowing one day that this whole world will be redeemed and we'll be part of it. So I said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. A redeemed earth. Amen. 
Let's move forward in our application here. I'm probably going to be a little bit longer than one. I have been, but our application is the ultimate reality is that all of this world being redeemed is nice to talk about, right? It is nice to think about it. But we can't divorce it from the one who is redeeming it, the Redeemer. The one who, who Job said, I know on the last day I will see my Redeemer. How did he know that? There is one who redeems. And to the one who isn't redeemed yet, he commands you to repent of your sin and believe upon him. His redemption is perfect. This is something we don't realize. His redemption is perfect if nobody else comes to him. His redemption is perfect. He lived perfectly under the old law, which none of us have ever done for one day. He died for sins. Those sins we carry about every day. And because of them sins, John says of the unbelievers that God's wrath abides on you. It means it rests on you. It means when you go to bed at night, it's there. When you wake up in the morning, it's there. When you're brushing your teeth in the mirror, the wrath of God is there. When you go to work, when you go to school, the wrath of God is there. And there's only one that is keeping it from being completely unleashed on us at any point in time. And that's Him. The one whose wrath is abiding. This morning, we don't just sit in another church service. That means nothing, right? Unfortunately, especially here in, this, in, the, in the Bible Belt, church is just something we do. It's part of the culture. We just come to church. You sit under the preaching of the Word of God, and He is giving you the only life-giving message there is. That sins have been paid for, and a full and complete righteousness is to be found in Christ. He earned it in His life and death. Then He rose and earned justification and defeated death. Scripture says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Come to Him and live if you don't know Him. Now brethren, I know we groan within ourselves from sin and death and suffering, but can we believe this message of hope? It's not always going to be like this. Right now we, we, we do groan about this stuff, right? But can we actually believe this? We need to believe it. We need to believe this message of hope. Do you believe it? I mean, do you really believe it, though? That's the question. Do we really believe it? Because yes, on Sunday, we'll, we'll say yes. But how about on Thursday? How about on Thursday, when your job sucks? And you've sinned against your Creator. And you're just feeling depressed. What about then? Do you believe it then? Or is it just something that you mouth on Sunday? Do you sit here every single Sunday and act like you're in agreement? Which we all do that, right? Yes, 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 yes. We, we all sit in agreement. But do you actually believe it? Are these truths something that give you rest, that give you hope, that give you confidence? I know a lot of people like to say amen on Sundays, right? 
But are they saying amen on Tuesday? When Monday, they've had the worst Monday that they've had in a long time. Are they still amening? Still shaking their head? Yep. Brethren, this is supposed to be our life, though. That's what Christianity is. It's our life. When you wake up tomorrow, will you have the same thing on, on your mind as you had this morning? Like, I, I can't. I, I just want to go worship God, right? What about tomorrow morning? Wake up in that same idea? If not, we must repent and believe and trust in Christ. Because he ain't any different tomorrow, right? Amen to that, right? He's the same tomorrow. He'll be the same Tuesday. He'll be the same Wednesday. Even if you, you do, your job does suck and you end up losing your job and you lose your house and you lose everything, he's still the same and he's still faithful. He's still righteous. He's still trustworthy. And we can still hope in the fact that this is not it. Christianity is not a Sunday religion. It's an everyday religion. Though we look to the future and hope, we must also apply this to the present. It's not just, I can't wait for that day to come. What are you doing with that right now? We can rest our minds in the fact that that day is coming, but we must not rest our works while we're still alive here. My last point here is our call to war. Brethren, when thinking about this coming redemption, this day that's coming, that the, the, it says the creation is pretty much pregnant with expectation of, shouldn't that light a fire under us? Shouldn't that make us excited to take forth the gospel message? You should be excited to go into the world with the life-giving message. That's what we have, is a life-giving message. And it's not, all you have to do is speak it. And we all do that. We speak all kinds of stuff. How many words do you think we speak in a day? I should have Googled this. How many words does the average person speak in a day? Some of us speak well above that average. Some of us speak well below that average. But the average person, but how many words does it take to speak forth the gospel? And we waste all kinds of words. We speak nonstop. And we have a, the, the gospel is the only life-giving message in all of history. And we know people are dying. We have a life-giving message and we know people are dying. And we know that they are spiritually dead. It's time to give up our comfort and go out with that message. All of creation groans in expectation of the revealing of the sons of God. The rocks cry out. The heavens declare the glory of, the God, of God. What about you? Are you out declaring the glory of God? Are you out in the world preaching? If not, why not? Why would we not do that? What's stopping us? Brethren, we're given 7, 80 years here maybe. Don't waste it on yourself. I said, that's, that's our struggle a lot of times, is it not? That we want, to, we want to spend everything and consume everything on ourselves. Don't waste this life on yourself. Lay down your life for Him. You're called to be an ambassador for Him in this land. And you have the message. See, that's the thing about Christianity is nobody is a Christian who doesn't know and believe the gospel. 
It's impossible. It's impossible to be a Christian and not know and believe the gospel. And guess what you need to go out and evangelize? The gospel. So the one thing that makes you a Christian that you must believe and you must know is the only thing that you need to go out and preach Christ. Why would we be scared of anything? I, I don't know what to say. What do you mean you don't know what to say? What did God do to you? Remember the, the lady? I don't know. I was blind, but now I see. Jesus said, don't, don't go tell anybody. <laughs> I'm going to tell everybody. Now, she should have listened to Jesus, but she was bursting forth with anticipation. She was pregnant with joy. I have to tell somebody. So if you're a Christian, you have no excuse not to preach. You didn't know the message, so take it out. God is redeeming the world, even now. Remember when Jesus you know, broke the Sabbath by healing somebody? And the Jews wanted to persecute him because he, wasn't, because he did something on the Sabbath? He did something on the Sabbath, so we need to persecute him. Yeah, he healed somebody. But what did Jesus say? He said, my father is working until now. And I myself am working. He is still working, brother. He's still saving. And he's using us and bringing men and women into his kingdom and making them his children. What better job could we have? Take forth that message. Before you thought I was about to close, I'm not. I want to see this before we close. This is applicable to us now as well. We live in a fallen world, brother. I know we can all say amen. We live in a fallen world. People are going to sin against you. Right? People are going to lie about you. People are going to lie to you. People are going to hate you. This is the world we live in. We should expect this as Christians. But how should we respond? With grace. We should respond with grace. If you tell me you're a Christian, but there's no grace in your life... I have reason to doubt your profession. If you tell me you're a Christian, you're lashing out and have no self-control, I have reason to doubt that you're a Christian. If you don't treat people the way we're called to treat people with love and respect, I have reason to doubt that you're a Christian. Now, ultimately, it doesn't matter what I think. But brethren, we're called to something higher. Can you say... That you're acting like this around people that God has put in your vicinity. You know, God's given us all, like you, you guys are all around different people than I'm around. And I'm around different people than y'all are around. The ones that God's put in our vicinity, can we say that we're actually acting like this towards them? Yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, they're going to violate me. But guess what? I should respond with grace and forgiveness and love. Let me ask you this. I lost my spot there for a second. And hopefully y'all don't need a steel toe boots for this one. Hopefully you're stepping on some people's toes, I'm sure, including my own. But do you get more excited about being able to de debate some theological truth than what you would if you were able to serve somebody, to serve that same person? Does it get you more excited to de debate something with somebody than to serve somebody? We get more excited about debating somebody 
over the internet, but then mumble and complain when it's time for us to serve our family. Now, Jeremy, those things aren't mutually exclusive, are they? You can do both. Yes, you can. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that God has put people in our lives to serve them. Those people that are in your life, God has put them there for you to serve them. Are you doing that? Or do the closest ones to you see you as distant? All the while spending your time with someone that's not even there. That's one of the... There's, there's pros and cons to, to the internet and to, to, to Facebook and, and Twitter and all this stuff. The pros being that we can take forth the gospel. I can preach the gospel to somebody in China today. The cons sometimes is we have our face dug in that thing so long that the people around us don't even... It's like they got, you don't even exist anymore. If you're closest to you, see you as distant. And this ought not to be the case. I say all this kind of as a little side note to say that we need to be gracious to those around us. We live in a fallen world, and as Christians, we should know this. Of all people, we should know this. When the early Christians were called to go out with the Great Commission, they were called to go out first in their home. Y'all see that in the text? He didn't say go to the uttermost parts of the earth. That wasn't the call. It wasn't, here's the gospel message, now go out to the uttermost parts of the earth. It was, go to Jerusalem. Where you live at. Then Judea. Right around where you live at. You start at home. What are you doing in your Jerusalem? To spiritualize that, if you will. What are you doing in your Jerusalem, in your home, in your, in your little vicinity that God has given us of the people that we affect? What are we doing with it? Stand up and serve one another. When someone fails you, be gracious. And don't say things that you ought not to be saying to them if they cross you, if they sin against you. Maybe, you know what, you know what, we should, I think we should practice this as Christians. If somebody sins against you, you know what we should do? Not say anything about it and serve them more. Is that not what Christ did? And is that not our example? Oh no, we got to defend that. I don't need to defend myself. Maybe just zip the lip and serve. You know, that's Christianity applied. Not simply reading books and discussing theology, though those are good things, and I, I can be guilty of myself reading way more books and discussing way more theology than serving people. But it, that ought not to be the case. When James, in the book of James, he says, it speaks of pure and undefiled religion. He doesn't say this is pure and undefiled religion that you read books and discuss theology. What does he say? To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's pure and undefiled religion. That's the war. That's what we're called to, brethren. So let's get to work for His glory and the advancement of His kingdom. Amen.